People across the country believe the American dream is no longer attainable. Growing inequality, economic immobility, political strife, the national crisis of addiction undermine the confidence of ordinary Americans every day. Could it be that the deterioration of the American dream is not the result of economics, but the collapse of civic institutions such as marriage, community groups, and religious organizations? Tim Carney joins us to discuss causes and solutions from his book, Alienated America, on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What. We're very pleased today to be joined by Tim Carney, who is the commentary editor of the Washington Examiner and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And as I said in our open, he is the author of a new book, Alienated America. Uh, Tim, great to have you with us on the show today. Thank you for having me, Boyd. All right. So uh, I love the title, Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Tell us, uh, I know this was a journey kind of uh, book for you. Tell us a little bit about that. So it started for me as I'm a political journalist. So it's a story that starts in Iowa in a pub in Des Moines where I met a a couple that was, they were, they worked at the, at the university there. I mean, not in Des Moines, in Iowa City. They worked at the university there. And the woman told me she was from Orange City. And I tried to figure out what the orange and orange city stood for. And it it stood for the the Dutch heritage. And sure enough, I Mm. looked up the numbers and half of this town claims Dutch ancestry. And she explained how as a kid, she wore clogs marching down the street past Windmill Square. And this is in Iowa. In Iowa. Wow. (laughs) Not in Netherlands um, for the Tulip Festival. And so this was like a Simpsons episode making fun of a bunch of Dutch people living out in middle America. And when I went out there, there was a couple things that come. That one, yes, this was a very Dutch place. But two, while uh, Trump was in the top two in polls in the Iowa caucuses, he did not have a lot of support there. But then I started trying to figure out what made this place tick. And I found all sorts of people talking about how tightly knit the community was there. And sure enough, politically, Trump ended up bombing in uh, in Orange City and in that county. Um, but then I became obsessed with looking at these Dutch places. And I you know, visited Western Michigan, and I went to a town in Wisconsin called Oostburg. And there I finally realized what should have been very obvious when I was sitting at the counter at a diner, and the people came pouring in from the, the 9 a.m. service at First Christian Reform Church, and then the 9.30 at First Presbyterian, and then the the 945 uh, Christian Reformed Church of America. And I mean, so they just, it was this immense, tightly knit community of churches that were so much more robust than the average church out there in America. And I started to realize that the only real middle-class places I could find in America that still had really strong, tight-knit communities were ones that had incredibly strong churches. And of course, I visited you a few months later out there in Salt Lake City, where you see this uh, written very clearly across, across the whole state and across many parts of the country, where the strong churches are the core of strong communities, which otherwise in middle class and working class America are very rare. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating, um, and and all the different places that that you went, and the different groups that you uh, took a took a real look at. 
Um, and even recently, you you talked about a, a comparison, I think, between uh, Chevy Chase and and uh, maybe it was the one in Wisconsin, um, Hoosberg, yeah, Hoosberg, yeah. Uh, in in terms of the the connection, uh, and and currently it's a connection to Trump, but I think there's also sort of a broader thing of in, in these tight communities or these communities that have robust civil society, uh, elections are less consequential to their lives because government's less consequential in their lives. Is that is that where this all comes? Yeah, that's, that's definitely right. That if you, and so you, you mentioned Chevy Chase, and that you might have heard about that when Brett Kavanaugh was in the news. It's uh, a very wealthy and it's uh, left-leaning, very heavily Democratic uh, village right outside of D.C. It's here in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live. But it's uh, the <laughs> one mistake some of my conservative Christian friends make is assuming that the wealthy elite liberals all are these decadents, like I don't know, living as swingers and, and doing pot or something like that. But no, they're they're all living the conservative life of finishing school, getting a job, getting married, having kids, and staying involved in their kids' lives, and building these strong institutions of civil society. So the village of Oostburg, the village of Chevy Chase, are very different in some ways, but they're the same sort of institution. That's one reason they have, well, very different politics in some ways, very similar politics because, so I studied classics at, at St. John's College in Maryland, and so I'm into the Greek roots of words. And politics, the old, the Greek word politike might be best translated as sort of the public things, the shared things, the things mm-hmm. that are out there in the public square. And for a lot of people, for someone like me, our politics is our involvement in a, uh, a youth sports league. It's what right. we're doing with our swim club. It's what we're doing in our, our neighborhood association. We're involved in these public things that have nothing to do with national elections that aren't showing up on CNN and Fox News. But if you don't have those sort of middle levels of society, those little platoons that you're part of, then the only politics you're going to have are going to be these national scale ones. And so the stakes are going to be so much higher. Yeah. And and is it true then that uh, everyone always likes to quote Tip O'Neill and, you know, all politics is local, but it seems like we've sort of flipped that in the, you know, with all of the national media and the instant access to information through the Internet. uh, It almost seems like this this deterioration of that that connected tissue, the the thick institutions, as, as you describe them, because that is waning, then all you do have is the all politics is national instead of local. That's right. And I think that this manifests itself on on the left and on the right. Um, Bernie Sanders and Occupy Wall Street are the examples I give in Alienated America about the on the left, where it's at first it seemed that these people didn't have any substance to me. I said, what, what are the issues you care about? And they kept saying, oh, well, it's about the, the big guys are controlling Washington. And I say, okay, great. But what are they doing with their control that you don't like? And they would tell me at Occupy Wall Street, oh, they're keeping out the voices of the regular guy. And I was trying to get to the bottom. Okay, your voices are kept out. They have all the power. They're in the smoke-filled room. You're locked out. What do they do in that room that you dislike, hoping they'd say bailouts or tax cuts right. or something? And, but they didn't. They just said, oh, well, they refuse to reform campaign finance. And so what seemed like a meta-politics to me, I realized was uh, – fundamental politics. There are a lot of young people at Occupy Wall Street at Bernie Sanders rallies who the main thing they wanted was the ability to flex their political muscle. And this is a good thing. This is what we're supposed to do, shape the world around us. And I get to do it through uh, my parish, my workplace, uh, my, my kids' swim club, my boys' schools, my girls' schools. 
I get to flex my political muscle in all sorts of ways without before I even step foot into anything doing with national politics. But if you don't even know about these, if you don't even think about these more human level institutions, you look to the national level. And that's why I think it, you could predict both Sanders support and Trump support by looking for signs of alienation in various places around the country. So is it that in our very hyper-connected world, we've become, it's sort of the lonely crowd complex, right? It's that we're, we become increasingly disconnected. Uh, is that really the kind of the genesis of it? I think there's lots of factors. And again, everybody, Robert Putnam wrote about this in 2000, and some a lot of the data still stands that everybody is a little less connected than we used to be. Mm-hmm. And certainly technology is a huge part of it. That These things that connect us to hundreds and thousands of friends makes our real-life friendships a little bit shallower. It would be one explanation. But then I do think that there are particular afflictions for the working class and the middle class that make them even more disconnected, more deinstitutionalized, and more alienated. Mm. And a, a lot of it is that the, a lot of places, if they didn't already have an incredibly thick network of uh, civil society, mostly meaning church, but if they didn't have it, then when things took an economic downturn, there was nothing to catch them. And communities sort of fell apart. This is what I saw in Fayette County, Pennsylvania, but it's different than in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh also suffered from the steel mills, but the rural places outside of Pittsburgh are collapsed while the city of Pittsburgh is doing fine. And I think it's because they had they had the, the industrialists who set up these institutions, these cultural, artistic, local institutions, parks. They had these neighborhoods, you know, the Italian Catholic neighborhood, the Jewish neighborhood of Squirrel Hill, all these very close local human level things. They help places suffer, uh, come through downturns, while places that don't have a, a strong uh, set of institutions there, there there's nothing to catch the people and they fall. So, so let's talk about that in terms of, of social capital. Um, I know that's a, an area that you, you dive into regularly uh, and, and clearly as, as part of your work on the book. Um, for, for the average person, what, is that really, what does that really mean? What's the real definition of social capital? Where is it working and, and how do we really apply it on a bigger scale? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question because sometimes sociologists, uh, my friends at AEI and on Capitol Hill use these terms, which are good terms. Yes. But the, they can sound too abstract. And so the the example I use in the book is when my daughter was in the hospital or a one-year-old. And so my wife and I are rushing back and forth to a hospital that's about 40 minutes away. We don't want to leave her unattended, so we're having to sort of tag team at the hospital. We've got six kids, so there's five other kids sitting at home. So in, in some ways, you could almost think of this as an enormous expense. What if we had to hire a babysitter? What if we had to order takeout every night because we couldn't cook dinner? But instead of spending our actually actual money on it, we drew on our reserves of social capital and um, friends just volunteered to come and watch our kids. Friends in the carpool, that we have a carpool, that we have real connections and that people know what's going on in our life without us even having to tell them. So the carpool would pick our kid up even if it was our turn to drive, even if we were supposed to drop them off at their house. There was all these things that had immense value to us and that it, because of our connections to parishes and my workplace and other institutions, these things of immense value that were sort of sitting there like an insurance policy, we drew on them when we needed it. Similarly, it's not just in, in the case of an emergency, but also just sort of I use the example of the, the t-ball and baseball teams that I started. I've been able to go to somebody at my parish and say, hey, 
I want to do a t-ball team. Here's the things I would need. Do you know anybody who could hook me up with that? And sure enough, somebody grooms the infield. Somebody else tells me where to get some equipment. Somebody gives me the email list to blast out and recruit all the kids. All of that stuff has real value. You could imagine spending money on it, but we have it for sort of zero monetary cost because we are plugged into these institutions and they provide us with these real valuable things for these social connections. Uh, I want to hit for a minute uh, one other component to social capital, uh, and that is uh, relating to upward mobility. Uh, your uh, your mm-hmm. your still colleague. We still get to call him colleague for a little while, right? Uh, with Arthur Brooks, yeah. You know, he likes to talk about it in terms of you know. So often we look at those in poverty uh, as as you know liabilities to be managed, as opposed to you know human assets, human potential uh, to be developed. How does social capital play into that upward <clears throat> mobility component? Because really, that is the at the essence of the American dream is the ability to uh, to climb a little higher to pursue your version uh, of the dream. Uh, How does social capital play into that? So, uh, first of all, there's numbers on this that really caught my eye and were one of the things that spurred the book. Raj Chetty is a, a researcher who wanted to see, he saw how uneven upward mobility was in the country, that it sort of, it seemed not to be getting worse. But if you look in a place like Charlotte, North Carolina, that area, it really was pretty bad. Someone starting in the lowest quintile had almost a 0% chance of getting up to the, the top one. And there's a high chance of doing worse than, uh, than your father. While uh, San Jose and Salt Lake City both had very high upward mobility relative and absolute. And so he tried to figure out controlling for all sorts of factors, doing uh, brilliant regression analysis, and said the two most important things were the percentage of intact families in an area and the uh, the measures of social capital that they had, which included volunteering, uh, charitable giving, number of organizations, number of churches, that all of those institutions seem to objectively, empirically do it, uh, provide upward mobility. So why is that? I think a big part of it is just sort of a great exposure and mixing of different income and education levels. So much of the country is very, we're much less segregated by race than we used to be. We're much more segregated by income and education status. But I also think it's more than that. I think it's the sense of purpose that comes with being plugged into something. If you belong to a an organization, a secular, religious, volunteer, even a, just a strong, tight-knit workplace, you're going to be called on and people are going to say, hey, Boyd, we need you to do this. And that fact of being needed that we take for granted that sometimes some of us in elite <laughs> and religious circles uh, think we're, we're called on to do a little too much. There's a lot of people in the country who don't feel needed, and I think, but I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't prove this, I think that that is a huge thing that keeps people from being able to climb the ladder is they just look around themselves and they feel like they're pointless. Uh, I want to play play off of that a little bit because you, you mentioned uh, the institutions around that, and you, and you mentioned in the book just the indispensability of, of institutions. And, and we live in this time where, uh, again, national media, members of you know, Congress kind of abdicating their authority, you know, all of these things seem to be eroding the trust of the American people in, in institutions, in, in big government, but it's, it's splashing over yep. into other institutions. And sadly, I think we're losing trust in one another uh, all the way down to the community and the individual level. That's right. I mean, social trust is such an incredibly valuable thing. And life just becomes so much better if you 
implicitly trust your neighbors and they trust you. Think about the ease. I think about like, you know, leaving your kids' bikes on the front lawn. It's a lot easier than having to lock them up in the shed. And that's a, a real big deal. And a big part of it is, yeah, as our attention gets taken away from what's close at hand and put onto the the national stuff, stuff that we have no control over, what the special counsel's investigation is going to turn up, what the what the tax rates are going to be, um, all these things that we have no control over, then we lose uh, sort of connection to the people around us, and then and then social trust uh, diminishes, and then life just becomes a lot harder. And I, I mean, I used a little image of the, the kids' bikes on the front yard, but you can imagine all sorts of things, just um, whether your kids are allowed to run around and play, whether you can borrow something, lend something to somebody, uh, just show up and visit a friend. All of those things that sometimes seem just kind of nice or even quaint are uh, have incredible value. And that the, the more that those become harder, the more the social trust decays, just the poorer our lives become in, in ways that might not show up immediately on sort of dollars and cents, but certainly do in quality of life. Uh, and how do you think, you know, we sort of have this uh, American image of the, you know, the rugged individualism and, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and, you know, we're going to push through this thing. Uh, and yet I think our history is uh, is so much more connected than that. It's the old, you know, it's the barn raising. The it, yep. If the neighbor needed the barn, you raised the barn. And it wasn't because the government told you to or you were threatened with a tax if you didn't or, you know, something. It, yeah. it, there is that natural connectedness. How does how does that balance out here in America? No, so I, it's a, it's a irony that Tocqueville noted, and I mean Tocqueville, while writing Alienated in America, I've come to suspect that Tocqueville was a time traveler because he seemed to have predicted <laughs> so much of this. But he describes uh, over centralization and a hyper individualism, seemingly two opposite things, as actually being two sides of the same coin. That a, a growing central power breaks the sort of horizontal bonds among individuals and between individuals and these uh, middle institutions. And so that, that I think, is a, a big part of it, that we get uh, separated off by a, a cultural and a governmental um, and a technological thing that sort of can make everything in some ways more centralized, but then leaves us standing more alone. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, when when you came out to Utah in 2016, uh, and again, with all of these other places you went from Iowa to Wisconsin and, and everywhere in between, uh, I want to get a sense of, of one, what you expected and then what you saw here. Uh, you, you came during a really interesting period there during the election. Uh, I think the week you came here, I, I had had I think 18 or 19 international journalists come who were trying to figure out, you know, what's what's going on in Utah? Mm-hmm. Why are they rejecting Hillary Clinton and they're rejecting uh, Donald Trump? Uh, why is that happening? And, uh, you know, we, we would kind of showcase the, uh, the the strong free market economy and the, the civil society component. Um, but I want to get your sense. What did you think you would see coming in? And then and then what did you what did you see? And then how does it relate to a lot of these other places you went? Well, so the, the, the most surprising thing to me was uh, especially coming off of 2012, when the Republican mantra sort of became, I did build that, the rugged individual we yeah. talking about. And I show up in this uh, conservative, low-tax, low-regulation state, and I sat down with some uh, Desert News editors, and there was this talk of um, 
outreach to uh, to refugees. And of course, Trump's antipathy to Syrian refugees is one of the things that uh, probably won him a lot of positive attention in the in the Republican primary. But then there was sort of the stuff that. Um, you know, as a Catholic, I'm used to seeing among Jesuit priests, which is lots of talk of uh, communitarianism and then the, the beehive imagery that I'd never spent any time thinking about. I started noticing that everywhere and thought, that, that sounds a little bit communist, doesn't it? We're all a bunch of worker bees. What's going on here? Uh, and then I sat down with you, Boyd, in your office, and you said, well, Hillary was right. It takes a village. And this uh, home what had been sort of fledgling ideas in my head from my visits to Oosburg and or and Sioux City and uh, and Orange City and Sioux County. Um, this the idea that people who go ahead and with their institutions build these really strong knit communities, they had an optimism that kept them from buying into the the pessimism of Trump saying the American dream is dead, but also some of the antagonism, the anti-refugee sentiment, some of the idea that there, there's some bad other that needs to be fought off, a lot of that is mitigated the more that just people feel that they, they trust their neighbors. And I found a real interesting study about this with Islam, that mm. people who go on the Hajj, the big pilgrimage to Mecca, come away compared to people, similarly disposed people who don't go on it, come away with warmer feelings for Muslims from other countries, which you'd expect. But warmer feelings towards the West, warmer feelings towards non-Muslims, warmer feelings, uh, sort of more more egalitarian ideas about gender, warmer feelings towards America. If you go on the Hajj, this religious pilgrimage, you come away loving other people more because it's just this intense communal relation aimed at something higher that builds trust. And so that's what I, I think I saw the same thing in Oosburg and, and Salt Lake City. And it was just something about the 2016 election made for a, an easy way to identify these places. Where did Trump bomb in the primaries? Let's go to these places and figure out what makes them different. And what makes them different was very strong institutions, very high social capital. Therefore, what? So people have been listening uh, to us for 25 minutes. Uh, they read your book, uh, Alienated America. What's the, what's the therefore what? What do you hope people think different? What do you hope they do different uh, after the experience? So I was, I was thinking about this uh, the other day, walking around University of Pennsylvania, and I saw si- buildings named after wealthy, you know, billionaires who gave a million dollars. But then I, I came home to my daughter's uh, CYO basketball game, and I noticed on the back of all their jerseys is a circle, and it says, Al Weaver, St. Andrews Sports, 1966 to 2016. And I thought, that's what I want. I'm, I'm not going to be the guy who has my name on a bill. I want them to name the baseball field at my parish after me. So that when people say, what are we supposed to do about collapsing society? There's stuff that the government can do, but on the federal level, most of it is don't do this bad stuff. Don't crowd the church out of the public square. Don't crush these institutions. The real solution is going to be the people who listen to this podcast who are going to say, you know what? I could start a t-ball team you know what i could start a weekly uh potluck people talk about good neighborhoods to raise a kid two parents in on a block 
could have sufficient social capital that if they put in the effort, they could make their neighborhood be a good place to have to raise a kid. And then there might be one more couple that gets married, one more couple that has a kid if they do that. So that's the that's the therefore what. It's not a big policy prescription. It's it's me thinking about how can I be the guy who builds the social capital, who connects people, who gives more people a sense of builds more safety net and helps people access the good life. It's going to happen on, on the local human level. Oh. That That's the solutions are going to come from. Yeah, that's fantastic. It, it does take a village, and the village is not the government. It's uh, it's the people, and it's those connections uh, that are so vital. I, I do have to let you know, Tim, that uh, in my neighborhood, we have an annual 1K donut run. <laughs> so it's not, it doesn't even go all the way around the neighborhood. It's just 1K. It's over before it starts, but they raise money for, they pick a charity every year, uh, and it's an extraordinary thing to watch. It's exactly what, uh, what you've been describing today. That's great. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Tim Carney, the, the book is Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. It's a great read, uh, great things to think about, uh, and more importantly, a lot of things that we can begin to do. Tim, thanks so much for joining us on There For What. Thank you. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What.